Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, like philosophy, but more trivial, yet actually relevant to your life. Today we're talking about the sitcom Friends and its vast legacy. This is Mark Meyer getting in shape to audition for the role of ugly naked guy in the reboot. This is Erica Spires, the one with the ovaries. And I'm Brian Hurt. And I took a quiz to find out which friend I was. And it turns out I'm a Miranda. Who knew? I thought it might have been a Samantha. (laughs) Whose idea was this? And by this I mean friends. Yeah. It's the 25th anniversary. The press is abuzz. We found more articles on this than on anything else we've covered in the recent past. A lot to weigh in on. 25 years since it started, because it ended 15 years ago. I feel like we should have waited 10 more years for this podcast. (laughs) We can revisit it in 10 years. Sounds good. Did you feel like it more or less continued? I found when I was reflecting back on this that I was confusing How I Met Your Mother episodes with Friends episodes. Oh, God, no. Like It was such a direct ripoff, as far as I'm concerned, with the charming characters and basically the same kind of plot dynamics with a little you know, extra gimmick in there. So that was part of what we wanted to talk about was, is it just going to be friends by itself or is it going to be, to what extent did everything subsequent to that? I could barely watch a a laugh track sitcom at this point. And I think that's the office's fault. But it seemed for a while there that everything was just a friend's clone. I think we have to talk about this in the context of other shows. I admit I haven't actually seen that much of How I Met Your Mother. So I haven't either. It was on at the gym a lot while I was there. Friends was like, so many people liked it. Maybe it's because I was younger when it came out, so it was like really cool. But I never felt guilty about watching Friends, whereas with How I Met Your Mother, I would watch it and be like, oh, this isn't very good, but I'm kind of enjoying these characters. I felt kind of guilty for watching. Hey, before we get going too far into Friends, we have to talk about spoilers. I assume we can spoil the crap out of this show. Anyone who's seen it is going to see it. Yeah, if you're curious, you haven't seen it yet, I don't think having the broad plot arcs ruined is going to make the show particularly worse for you. Or as we do in other podcasts, hit pause, go watch all (laughs) 256 episodes, and come back. All right, for those of you rejoining us, you are several months older now and wiser. What did you think of Friends? I was disappointed that there were only 236 episodes, not 250 cents. I sat there for an extra 10 hours just, (laughs) just waiting for more to happen. Well, Netflix would start showing you something else, so you'd watch 10 hours of, I don't know what. Confession, how many episodes did you rewatch specifically in preparation for this podcast? I watched the first episode and then the two-parter last episode. 
All right, so you watched one more than me because I watched the first episode and then I wanted to watch the highest ranked one. Oh, what was that? It was the one that actually showed up on a number of lists of the number one episode as well by people who are reviewers or rankers called The One Where Everyone Finds Out. And it was a bit of a Three's Company game of cat and mouse of Phoebe and Rachel playing a trick on Chandler and they know that they're dating, but they don't know we know they know. And so Phoebe's doing her romantic moves on Chandler. And it's, I laughed out loud a few times watching that again. It was really funny. I was so glad because the first one wasn't that good and not that enjoyable to watch. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I could watch any more friends after this first one. I did not enjoy the the pilot, if that's what it was at all. I thought the pilot was really good. Now, I didn't necessarily laugh out loud in the pilot, but I thought as far as I was really surprised that what it debuted in 1994, watching that episode, I already felt like I knew, in retrospect, they knew exactly what they wanted to do with those characters. And I don't see that happening a lot of times. And maybe it's because since the time of sitcoms in this vein with the laugh track, our culture is more about like, how can we develop these characters and how can we have the conflicts and how can we see the darker side of them? But with Friends... I knew exactly who every character was in that pilot episode. They established everyone so beautifully. And I mean, whether or not you ended up liking the show or not, I think that's something that a lot of shows struggle with in the beginning is what is it going to be? What are we going to make this? And it seemed pretty clear in the beginning what this was about. So I was in a very advantageous position regarding this topic, which is why I was the one who brought this up in the first place, in that I was happy never seeing this show again. But my wife had at some point watched through the whole series since we had Netflix and had started within the past several months showing them to my daughter. So like that is the thing that is on in the house a lot when things are on in the evenings. So I've gotten to see not all of them, but like, you know, half the time I would be in the room and yeah, I just was surprised at how well, it seemed to hold up. Regular chuckling, depending on what mood you are. I just, I didn't feel like the dramatic stuff was so over saccharine or something. You know, it seemed like pretty effective. And then in preparation for this, since they're only up into season four at this point, I just jumped through and watched a representative sampling over the last few days. So probably 10 episodes from different portions trying to hit some key points or things that had been mentioned in the articles. Speaking of the articles, you shared with us a Vulture article. It was about what the critics said about the 1994 debut of Friends. This is a Vulture article by Margaret Lyons. This one is from Variety from September 22nd, 1994. Concept is okay, but the humor's less sophisticated than expected from the executive producers of HBO's comedy series Dream On, which is funny now in retrospect, right? Because like I remember that being a TV show, but that didn't have the kind of impact that Friends does. Dialogue is not exactly snappy. Ross, I honestly don't know if I'm hungry or horny. Chandler, stay out of my freezer. Moral and health issues are sidestepped altogether. Friends touts promiscuity and offers liberal examples of an openness that borders on empty-headedness. It's not much of a positive example for Jews, though. (laughs) Really? That's where we were in 94, that that was too promiscuous for the juveniles. Part of it was the whole episode was about sex. Like, that's all it was about. I I feel like we kind of tap danced around things sometimes back in the 90s, and you could have it be about something but not be about it the whole time. And and it was so sex-obsessed. I remember at the time, it really struck me that the word penis was used all the time, but vagina was never. And then, like, 
friends used it all the time. Like, yeah, we're going to use that too. And they were just sort of out there. I think that was really kind of great that they were doing something a little different. They used the word fart a lot. And that was something that maybe you could say on a sitcom before then, but friends just totally let it rip. And, oh, uh, oh man, I, once I, once it started, I, I couldn't hold it in. Oh God. Oh no. There you go again. <laughs> there you go again. So uh, in any case, you mentioned uh, the age you were when you were watching this. Mark and I are older than you. We are just younger than the actors and pretty contemporaneous with, you know, I wasn't living in New York or anything, but being a 20-something when these characters were 20-somethings. I don't know if I could say I related exactly, but I definitely connected on some way with them. And I remember really liking the show at the time. I'm like actually very interested in, is this something that actually would jive with where you were in, in your life, like even though if you, you weren't living in New York City, but is this how you imagine people your age who lived in New York City? Or is this the kind of existence that was like maybe your ideal existence at that time? Not even slightly. <laughs> I didn't relate to this at all. I did feel like that 28, you know, I think which is kind of the median age for the characters when they're started here was kind of just like every high school TV show has to start with the kids as sophomores so that they, you know, they're not freshmen, but they have a couple years before they have to figure out how to revamp the show so they're not in high school anymore. Here is like they're full adults. It's not like girls. They're not fresh out of college or whatever, but they're not yet 30 something. So it was like they were trying to hit some particular set something up as like this is the idyllic age or something, you know, some sweet spot between being too old and too young. Being on the other side of that now, like I feel like there's some truth to that. There's a time after your early 20s, like after you get out of college and maybe you do get your first job finally, and you start to make a little bit of money and be able to pay back those loans, just start to. So there's a fear of how to live in the world, but there's also a lot of promise. It's like you feel like you're getting ready to do something awesome. And then once you get into your 30s, I think it starts to be more like, oh, I'm not the young one anymore in the room. I don't have as much promise or I'm not seen to see to have as much promise as everybody else. And things are starting to get really real. And I'm seeing what the rest of my life is maybe going to be like. So I think there is a reason for that sweet spot, right? It is an idealized time. And certainly that's not an end all be all. I know that there is plenty of promise left in life as Grace and Frankie has shown us. I think it's an abundance of opportunity more than anything else. You can have a lot of promise, but as you get older, just doors necessarily close to you as you start making choices. And for a bunch of gorgeous white kids living in the cradle of civilization, sure, yeah, anything is open to these rascals. And they and they do, and they reinvent themselves. Brian, you sound so much older than you are. <laughs> these rascals. <laughs> these so-and-sos. <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> so there's a specific narrative. This could be a different show for you know, aspiring rock musicians when they reach exactly that age because they realize time is kind of running out to get big. I feel like that's when musicians are the biggest assholes is exactly that age where they're starting to really get nervous that the thing that probably wasn't going to happen really probably isn't going to happen, but it still could and it still would be respectable for it to happen now. But in a couple of years, no. That's what makes the movie Yesterday work. It's a fairy tale about this guy who's about to quit and everyone forgets the Beatles and so he steals them or he just takes them because no one else owns them. It totally is that cusp of giving up or realizing that nothing is in front of you anymore. 
or the dream that you're holding on to has to be let go. So there's some of that in Friends, that there's in Joey's acting career and in, I don't know, it's implied or it was raised in one of the articles that Phoebe sees the reason she doesn't get a more steady job is because she sees the music career as like being her main outlet of expression, but that's just so used as a joke that she's so not serious about anything. The typical struggles and pain involved in that are not showing through that character. Well, so that kind of turns to, yeah, are we supposed to identify with these characters? Are we supposed to just like these characters? Like what is essential for actually enjoying the show? I've seen some articles about how a lot of people who are much, much younger are into the show. I mean, I don't know. I think we might have considered showing it to the kids earlier, but it was too much about sex. Like I felt like showing that to my 11 year old or something. I wasn't going to encourage that, but apparently a lots of 11 year olds and even nine year olds have seen every episode multiple times. And so it can't be just a matter of identifying with them. It just has to be that these are charming people and well punched up scripts. I think that the writing is good, but I think the acting is really good. Every single person on that show, to varying degrees, is very successful in their comedic timing. It constantly surprises me because I've seen shows kind of like this with maybe the same jokes. I mean, I'm going to use How I Met Your Mother for this. So many of those jokes I found to be lame. Looking back at Friends, I'm like, there are a lot of lame jokes there as well, but why did it make me laugh? And I feel like there was a commitment to the characters that made the comedic timing just really work. Whereas I watched something like How I Met Your Mother, and it kind of reminds me, even though it's a better show than Two and a Half Men, which I've seen a couple episodes of, it kind of reminds me of that same idea. It feels like it's taking a step backwards in terms of what we expect from our actors on screen. Not to say that these aren't fine actors on How I Met Your Mother, but maybe it was just a more clear idea of who these characters were on Friends. Whether that was up to the showrunners or the actors themselves, they have really excellent comedic chops, especially, um, I mean, not especially, every time I try to pick out one, then I see some other one that like surprises me. But David Schwimmer and his physical comedy, it's vaudevillian at times. It's, it's excellent. I'm so glad you said that about his physical comedy, because I, I think they are gifted in different ways and they're given opportunities to shine in their own way. And so that one I mentioned earlier about Phoebe pretending to come on to Chandler, that that really was Lisa Kudrow at her finest when she's sort of putting on character traits. You know, I feel with Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry, it was more sort of verbal timing sometimes. They all had the things that they excelled at. I do think they elevated the material a little bit. I think different actors could have done it and it would have been okay. I do wonder it sometimes too, if they weren't writing for the actors, writing to their strengths and writing what they know that they could pull off. And you don't see that in a pilot the way you do later on when they're well-established, when we know them and know their traits. I just think, you know, comedy is hard. And they were making like 17 to 24 episodes a season. And to continue that and make it funny, somewhat, at least somewhat funny every episode is really excellent. And we don't expect that out of a lot of TV shows now, right? They have fewer episodes per season, or there's a different kind of arc that binds it, so it, it doesn't have to be funny every time, even if you're watching a comedy. But this was just fun. And so to answer your question, Mark, I think it is actually like well-acted and well-written, but they're also just likable. My husband, he and I tend to like very dark things, but it, I always thought it was funny because he's a big Friends fan. And I never understood that because I'm like, this just doesn't jive with everything else I know about you <laughs> as a person. And he's like, well, they're just likable in a way that like Seinfeld is probably a better show, right? But it's made around 
characters you're not supposed to like necessarily. And that's the funny part of it. So it's kind of nice to sit in with people who are, you want to root for them at the end of the day. But those aren't necessary for each other. I feel like with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, we have really unlikable characters, but we still root for them because we understand the grotesque universe that they live in and they have their struggles with each other. And yeah, it's nice occasionally to see Charlie or Sweet D or whoever come out on top when they don't normally, or even Dennis, when he, even though he's so insufferable. So it's not a matter of rooting. What do you think it is? No, I think it is rooting, even if they're unlikable. You know, you talk about these movies like The Godfather. Well, they're all bad people, but they're bad people in a bad world. So we recalibrate ourselves. So I think there's a little something to calibrating ourselves to whatever show they're in. And there are these poor kids living in the big city. And so we're rooting for them to succeed. So a lot of the commentary on this online is a matter of that if the idea is you're supposed to like these people, then when there's extended behavior that is morally objectionable, it never occurred to me until I was looking at some of this online commentary that people would have such a visceral hatred for, especially in the Ross versus Rachel thing, which is kind of the most agonizing part of the fact that they dragged this out for 10 years. <laughs> like this thing that was set up in episode one. Like imagine if The Office had done that, you know, that they also set up in episode one that Jim and Pam, you know, Jim likes Pam. And like that was at least, it took a couple years to resolve but not the entire run of the show. Like, that would have been unbearable. The last season was whether Pam and Jim would make it. Oh, that was God. the whole... I mean, it was terrible, Yeah, but that's what it was. So, <laughs> okay. try again. I let myself forget that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go to How I Met Your Mother either, since that was the whole gimmick the entire time. It's difficult to use that gimmick over and over. I mean, I think Friends used it pretty well. We were okay with it at the time. Will they, won't they? I think there has to be more now. Like for me, at least, as a watcher of many TV shows, if I can see exactly where something is going and it's will they, won't they, and you know eventually they will, it's just less interesting. I think the relationship of the Friends in general is ultimately why it worked and not necessarily Ross and Rachel. So, but in that pitched, how they could extend that out is basically that they decided that they wouldn't. And yet they're still around each other all the time, which, you know, unless you're Fleetwood Mac, you don't do. <laughs> when you divorce or whatever, you stop hanging around each other day and night. And so that became an ongoing thing. And so the online criticism was, if they're decided to break up, is it, oh, that Rachel's so evil for sabotaging all of Ross's relationships going forward? Or he was so jealous and blah, blah, blah. You know, do you find that kind of moralizing about it to be, a normal and appropriate reaction, like as if these were your friends of friends that you were making judgments about, or, you know, cause as a piece of entertainment, like I found some of it aggravating, like, oh, they're going to keep dragging this out, but it's not visceral aggravation at the characters as if they were people I know. I think it's hard to get that worked up about characters in a sitcom the way that I might in a drama. I mean, I don't expect them to behave quite as rationally or people break up in dramas and they don't continue to hang out together. As you say, I expect them to behave more like humans would and not like the fact that we have a cast of six highly paid stars and they're all going to continue to be on the show no matter how they continue to make up and break up and change partners with each other. That's how sitcoms work. I mean, The Office was the same way. And you know, Angela and Andy had this horrible falling out and then like they're sort of friendly with each other. 
And they're working, I mean, I guess they're in the same office, so they have to hang out together, but one would quit or something, I don't know. So I I don't expect that kind of rational behavior, and I certainly am not going to get all into moral outrage or shake my fists over what people are doing on a comedy, unless it's the Big Bang Theory, and then I'll just get into an outrage over the fact that they exist. (laughs) Gauntlet thrown. We're not doing a Big Bang Theory episode. Pretty Much Pop is brought to you by Mack Weldon, a premium brand of men's essentials. If not running around naked is something you find essential. Nobody who knows me has ever accused me of wearing high-end clothes, and I've muddled through life in some saggy drawers. I mean, think Walter White standing in the middle of the New Mexico desert in the pilot of Breaking Bad. Like that. I needed an upgrade, and one look at Mack Weldon's site, and it was clear I had found it. So to my inner Walter White, I say, take a look at the Mack Weldon 18-hour jersey briefs. The no-roll waistband. The cool mesh zones. They're the ones. There are a lot of striking colors and patterns to choose from, but I'm all in on No Fear Red. I think the underwear can actually make no fear happen. Seriously, look at them. I'm expecting superpowers. As for the 18-hour part of the 18-hour jersey briefs, well, I'll never tell. There's more than underpants on the site. Shirts, pants, and socks. Swimwear, outerwear, and accessories. Really, if you want to look smart wearing premium fabrics and you don't know how... Mac Weldon is how. The online shopping experience couldn't be easier, so what are you waiting for? No, no, wait. Here's what you're waiting for. Right now, listeners of Pretty Much Pop will receive 20% off their first order from Mac Weldon. Just visit MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N. And enter the promo code POP. And finally, as much as you want to be comfortable, Mac Weldon wants you to be comfortable. If you don't like your first pair of underwear, they'll refund your money and you can still keep them. No questions asked. So there's really no reason not to give Mack Weldon a try. It's better than whatever you're wearing right now. Unless you're wearing nothing, in which case... Oh, please don't complete that thought, Brian. Let's get back to the discussion. I have a a lot of people in my life who are like, don't you love the Big Bang Theory? Because they know that I'm a bit of a nerd. And I'm like, "Mm, don't really watch it. You know, I'm not really watching primetime television now, so I don't know. I hear it's really good. I don't like it, but I do hate it. We tried that. We bought the first season and only got through about five episodes. So I know some people that swear by it, but it's one of the things that made me think that like I never wanted to watch anything with a laugh track again. But I wonder about this division between a laugh track, which is the ultimate in artificiality. And I'm thinking of like the Brady Bunch or Leave it to Beaver, like where they're obviously not in front of a live studio audience versus actually being in front of a studio audience that is laughing, which is, that's actually the impression that I get with Friends or Frasier or something like that that's kind of presented as a play in this way. And I don't know what's going on in those Chuck Lorre comedies, but whether or not they're actual people in front of the Big Bang players, I don't feel a part of the crowd and wanting to laugh out loud. So whether it's a live audience or merely a fake laugh track, it feels like a fake laugh track. I assume you've seen this, but someone removed the laugh track from... The Big Bang Theory, so you could watch that to see it's just people saying shitty things to each other with long pauses in between. Totally <laughs> worth watching. Should we talk about some of the criticisms of the show? Yeah, what do you want to start with? I mean, why don't we go for the big kahuna, Fat Monica? What are the feelings we have now? What have we read? What are, How are we uncomfortable with this in the way that we view television and movies today? There are a couple issues here that even at the time you could ask sort of how toxic was the room. And there was an article I will link folks to about that where there was even a lawsuit involved that 
Yes, one of the creators is a woman. It's David Crane and Marta Kaufman, and they were the ones, they were there the whole time, and they kind of determined the whole season arcs, and there were some women on the writing staff, but overall, it was still a very guy-heavy style of humor, so I don't know if this cuts right to the Fat Monica thing, but certainly a lot of the reasons that one could object to the humor or that it hasn't aged well. And the other thing is just the aging, the passage of time. And it's this, and it's also the homophobia, the many homophobic comments and trans. The, there's a whole thing about Chandler's father being trans and his negative reaction to that throughout and the many jokes about that throughout. And so those things seem to have worn less well over time. What do you feel like? Do these elements make it less enjoyable or, okay, so that joke wasn't as funny, but like it doesn't pull down the overall show or does it somehow fundamentally taint things? For me, there's enough of it that I feel like is funny that I can still just look at it and say, oh, this was a pretty good show that made some some mistakes, some big mistakes sometimes. The Fat Monica trope is pretty terrible and pretty lowest common denominator in terms of making fun of things. I mean, I feel the same way about Kathleen Turner, who played Chandler's mom, as it were. They just called father in the show, just to be to be clear. His former father, let's say that. Well, see, isn't that even a thing? Isn't that even difficult to like talk about? Why are they calling it a father? He was in drag. Kathleen Turner was playing a male in drag, not playing anyone who was trans or transitioning. Really? I'm not totally sure, but that was my recollection. It was just, it's a little hard to know when we didn't have the same language back then. Nothing struck me about this at the time. Put it that way. I mean, 20 years ago when they were making these jokes, it didn't seem like they were off or out of the cultural moment in a really big way. It's just, that's what humor was then. And it doesn't excuse it, but it really does get down to how much you can stomach watching something like that now. And I've noticed even shows more recent. I've been rewatching Futurama, and there are some jokes that really are dated just because they make fun of celebrities in the year 2000, which, like, I don't need an Emerald joke, but there are also, like, some sexual orientation jokes that just kind of clunk. And I don't think these were necessarily bad-hearted people. I just think that this is sort of where we were in 2000, and that was almost 20 years ago now. Right, and it was pushing the envelope probably at the time for the runners to have Chandler's father be, I've seen now in two different articles, one says transgender woman, the other one says drag. So I'm unsure, but they were probably pushing the envelope to have that at that time period, right? So it's like, well, they're getting something out there. They're putting something into the public eye that we didn't see usually on television before in that way. Now we can look at it and be like, ooh, that's not okay. It was kind of a weird transition period in television too. At the same time, it wasn't like my father is trans and I've disowned him or it has right. destroyed our relationship. It was, it had an acceptance, the same with Ross's ex-wife and her wife. I mean, it was something that it was very positive of what at the time I guess would be called alternative lifestyles. And that was great. And there was an article we read that pointed that out. Friends at 25 is the sitcom really as problematic as people say. Well, I mean, they were, I think, doing their best that they could in the cultural moment and also, yeah, playing for cheap laughs. I don't say cheap, but the easiest laughs that they could get going after flamboyantly trans or the fat suit. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff that really is hard to watch today, even though at the time I didn't really think much about it. 
I just saw this because I wanted, I'm really interested what was going on with the terminology. Refinery29, Friends Creator regrets one of the show's problematic elements. And this is by Nick Levine on May 6, 2019. So this is from an interview with the co-creator Marta Kaufman. And she says that she wishes she would have done things differently. And she quotes, I think we didn't have the knowledge about transgender people back then, so I'm not sure if we used the appropriate terms. I don't know if I would have known those terms back then. I think that's the biggest one. Every time I watch an episode, there's something I wish I could have changed. And then she also says, it really is a period piece. We had Jonathan Joss on before, right? But he said, sometimes it's important to have things as they were, so we see what they were for what they were. This is how we saw these people then, or this is how we didn't understand these people then. And maybe there's something actually important to that rather than updating it and making it better for now. It's like we can actually look at it and say, this is what people thought then. And this is how uninformed we were. And no, it's not okay. But to go back and change it is actually changing the original intent. And it's important not to sanitize those things sometimes and see like we were backwards. I'm also wondering about just the issue of representation in general, that you couldn't make this show now if, if it was rebooted. For sure, one of the characters, at least one of the characters would be black. They tried, given that they had this core group that Ross was going out with an Asian woman for a while and then a black woman near the end. Of course, all the guest stars were just incredibly gorgeous, you know, of whatever representative group. And you could say, like, well, it's a little artificial storytelling-wise that if you do have a white main character that for sure the best friend has to be black like every time and probably gay not that that never happens but like the chances of that happening in the wild are regrettably lower than <laughs> but on the other hand there's it's so artificial that these characters are together anyway like you might ask why are joey and chandler best friends joey and phoebe kind of have very little in common with the rest of the people it's sort of inorganic in the first place, a little artificial to throw these. And we'll think of, you know, some in-show reasons of how they could have met. It's never even really been entirely clear to me. So if you're already starting, it's already artificial, then why not insist on an artificiality that supports representation? Joey was just the roommate, right? He answered an ad. I mean, I, that would have been nothing. I don't really know how Phoebe actually connects in terms of backstory. But I think the pushback, if you want to call it that, is it would be reasonable. And you do find, if you were to just find six random friends, it's not uncommon for them all to be the same race. I know you can't make a TV show that way anymore unless you're doing something really specific. Or, I mean, it's already 10 years old now, but to go back to It's Always Sunny, yeah, there's five people as the main characters. They're all white. Now, three of them are related to each other, but they're horrible. And they're representing a really specific subculture of Philadelphia and I just, I guess, part of America. But I guess even one of them is gay. So they're already better off than we are with friends. Yeah, it's a difficult conversation. And we have three white cis people talking about these things, right? So I think that's something for us to consider as we go along is having more conversations with people who feel differently than we do. And those people should contact us and volunteer. Yes, please. We need it. I was watching Succession the other day. Oh, don't spoil that for me. I'm not going to spoil I've been it. Totally, I've been so dragging my feet on that, and I keep turning <laughs> off podcasts that talk about it. I know it's terrible. I will not spoil it for you. I'm actually not caught up completely either. But I was just noticing in like the boardroom, they're all white. 
I saw the boardroom and I said to my husband, like, why isn't there a single person of color in that boardroom? And he goes, well, I think they're just trying to make a point with the kind of like boardroom it is. And I was like, well, maybe, but now as maybe it's because I'm an actor or maybe it's because this is something we all talk about now. Is that just casting being lazy and just assuming, oh yeah, we need more people that look like they'd be in this boardroom and not challenging themselves to be like, oh yeah, why wouldn't we have somebody of color who's powerful and in a position who acts in the same way that these awful moguls do? I can no longer really separate myself from a casting perspective. Mark, you're white. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) No one cares. (laughs) You're a what man. I Why don't you explain it to me? <laughs> I want to shift to uh, another issue, which is whether these characters are supposed to be, since I introduced the, the idea of artifice, is it artificial that these characters are being crammed together? So if we have a workplace comedy, that's why they're together. <laughs> they work together. That at least in sunny Philadelphia, they run a bar. There's an official reason. Community, even though it got more tortured every year, why they would all still be at the community college and not all of them continue to the community college. They could easily explain why they got rid of cast members because they had movie deals or whatever. But there was at least an ostensive reason. And to the extent that it's irrational, they made a thing of it. And I think that's what's going on here. Some of the people that the friends meet are just like, you guys are all weirdly codependent. Like that this is not a typical set of friends. This is the only in-show reason to justify such a close focus on these characters and not so much the characters around them and that the friends do not come and go. We didn't have like, oh, Jennifer Aniston had a movie and so they just had her character go to Paris for six months. And like some shows do that kind of thing. What you folks think about this whole connection between the artificiality necessary to set up the situation in the first place and the in-show reasons for it. Is this important? This seems like an element of realism, whether you simply lose interest because like it just seems too random or not. You know, the name Friends explains a lot. It is just at the end of the day about these people who are friends. There's really not much else to that. And so, no, I guess it is kind of an artificial show that has likable people and it doesn't really bother me because I'm already in their prefabbed world. There's this Twilight Zone episode from the original series called, I think, Four Characters in Search of an Exit. And there are these just four archetypes. There's like a soldier and a ballerina and a couple others and they're just trapped in this room together. And I'm going to spoil Twilight Zone. It turns out they're just like toys at the bottom of a bin. But I feel like Friends, our six characters may be the only people that actually exist. It's this weird solipsism, right? We have like this table that only they're allowed at at Central Park to the point where I think there's even a reserved sign on that. And people come and go out of their universe, but for the purposes of watching them, like they're just people for them to react to in order to, to do their thing. But I think they're the only actual characters on the show. And we never invest in anyone else no matter how close they are, if it's like Ben or... Except for Gunther. Emma, the kids, like we don't, like maybe Gunter, right? But not even Gunter, seriously. <laughs> like we do not care about anybody and I don't think we're supposed to. Yeah, agreed. I don't think it's supposed to be realistic in that way. And I actually kind of like it that way because sometimes, you know, shows try to bring on extra characters and we're supposed to care about them. And I think you mentioned this last time, Brian, in the office, there are a couple people brought in and we're like, Why? Plop and Dwight Jr. Yes. Or Merck Oliver on the Brady Bunch. You guys must have loved the Brady Bunch. You both. It was on the UHF channel 
in the Chicago area. And I think Mark and I must have seen a lot of it on Channel 32 back in the day. If we're going to go down this road, so I noticed in one of the Early Friends episode, Willie Tanner, the dad from ALF, was Rachel's boss at the coffee shop for one episode and told her she did a bad job. And it seemed like this was maybe an exploration of, like, we could, instead of just having Gunter and random, you know, other young people milling around, we could have a authority figure, an older figure who would be a consistent presence and it did not last. Well, I mean, we had, who's my mom's crush? Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. <laughs> he was on for quite a long time. And eventually Paul Rudd became, I, I didn't realize it was quite that long, that it was like a season and a half that Paul Rudd was on as Phoebe's man. Yeah, he got pretty close to being, I think, somebody we really cared about. I mean, you can't not with Paul Rudd. Then again, another boy from uh, around my neck of the woods, so I have to love him. I'm obliged. I had a question. This is talking about things that maybe they were establishing early on and didn't stick. But rewatching the pilot, when Ross asks Rachel if he could ask her out sometime, right? are we supposed to forget that happened and he harbors a totally secret crush on her for the next two years? Well, I don't recall what happens after that pilot. Does he ask her out? It's that he's working toward it for a few episodes, and then there's the blackout episode, which is one of, kind of one of the most famous episodes, and he's about to ask her out for real there. Joey says, you're already in the friend zone, and then she meets Paolo. So there's an impediment. There's always an impediment. Oh, my goodness. I just hope those two get together. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm talking about Rachel and Paolo at this point. They're not talking about doing a reboot, are they? A uh, revival? There was discussion. I mean, people talked to the creators about it, and they said, no, we're not doing that. I hope they don't. I think it's nice as it was and probably wouldn't work as well today. Well, didn't one of the articles say, well, maybe we'll do a Sunshine Boys kind of thing. In other words, wait another 30 years and have the old friends sitting around, you know, have them do a movie as old people if they're all still alive. <laughs> all their kids can be friends. Oh, that would that, be a show. No. I would not watch that. Nope. <laughs> if you got spunky enough... I actually told my daughter, like, oh, it's really crazy how in season five, they all die in a car wreck and they replace them with different friends for the rest of the season. (laughs) (laughs) Or perhaps different actors playing the same friends that they all uh, had to get identity uh, changes. (laughs) They all got plastic surgery. Somebody will do a Brady movie sort of thing with them eventually, where different actors will (laughs) recreate those roles for some comic purposes. I'm sure it's been done at some level already. Speaking of Brady's, did the show jump the shark, Mark? Yeah, I think that's a Happy Days thing. Oh, wait, is that (laughs) Happy Days? It is. Why did I think that was Brady's? When Fonzie jumps over a shark. Because the Brady's are responsible for everything that is bad in sitcoms. Oh, okay. (laughs) Right, he he water skis over a tank full of sharks. Happy oh, days. I didn't know that. I was surprised in watching some of the laser seasons how well it holds up because I thought that I remembered it just going downhill. And I'm sure that's just entirely because of the let's get Joey and Rachel together kind of thing that they played with but didn't actually come to fruition. But that was like, a, you know, a good half season of stuff in there. And to the extent, you know, in the very first episode, I think it was in the pilot that they dissed Three's Company. Right. Like, this is the one with the misunderstanding. Oh, I've already seen that. And they turn it off. 
and some little freeze company things were happening at some points in the plot. That whole did Joey propose by accident? It's a misunderstanding that you know should have been resolved in minutes. But oh, somebody comes in when they're about to reveal. Like that's just the thing that makes you want to yell at the TV is that when things that should sensibly be resolved get interrupted by one thing or another, and so it has to get dragged out at least until the end of the episode, if not for months. You know, the question of if it did and when did it are really two different things. Because by the end, the show is really a shell of its former self. It's not as sharp as it was, and it certainly isn't. It's funny, and maybe I'm just tired of it by then. But I don't really know when that happens. I feel like Ross and Rachel finally getting together was something it was building towards. And a lot of what happens after that is, all right, now we have to mess with that. And let's ruin it and fix it and ruin it and fix it. And I'm like, okay, now we're going through some cycles here. And I don't know how well you remember the whole Jump the Shark website. It's not live anymore. I don't know if TV Tropes probably has kept something going like that. But it always had these categories of how shows Jump the Shark, whether it was the very special episode where something serious happens or whether it's a wedding episode or whether it's the on-location episode. And I feel like we had all those on Friends. Like they really... It went long enough that we had everything that could happen did happen. The big special guest stars. So take your pick. I mean, I found those special guest stars really irritating when we were having Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis. I'm like, this is terrible. Although that Bruce Willis episode where Ross is at the cabin with Bruce Willis's daughter and then Bruce Willis walks in with Rachel, I guess I should say his character name, but I don't remember. And they, they like walk in. He's about to catch Ross with his daughter. I remember laughing out loud so hard at the physical comedy in that he like walks in the room and Ross like drops to the ground behind the door and then just shuffles under the bed. That was well done. I remember getting douche chills watching the Bruce Willis episodes with he was like making some muscles in the mirror and Ross catches him and I was like, and I was so embarrassed that I could barely stand to watch it. You know, another thing I think that I think is important about Friends and something I always kind of liked about it is how much they were friends outside. And I know this is not important to it being like necessarily a successful show, but I always like when I find out the celebrities are nice people or that they get along and just knowing that they would like watch their episodes together and hang out. And that even extended into business life. I think it's so rare the fact that they all negotiated their contracts together and that if they didn't get what they wanted, they would have all walked. I think that is extremely unique in the business world in general. So to see that happening in the 90s where they all came together and said, hey, this is successful, we're going to get paid this, and we're all going to get paid this, or we're going. I think a lot more shows would be successful if they did the same thing. I remember that at the time, and it was someone had pointed out that it was uh, Matt LeBlanc who really kept them together in terms of the negotiations. And you know, I had no reason to think it was one or the other, but you tend to know them by their characters. But it turns out, for whatever reason, he was the one who really kept that together like that. So it was just one of those, you learn a little something about the people involved. Disputes have led to shows breaking up in their configurations. It's Rob Lowe talks about it and why he left the West Wing, that he had been paid more early on than some of the others, but then he didn't. When the show was a big hit, they weren't offering him the same thing, and that's why he left. So. It was good that they were able to keep that core together. 
Well, I think there are a lot of other avenues we could chase this down just about the relationship of the writers and the actors and the characters as fully fleshed out versus as vehicles for comedy. You know, like we have Chandler, who's the joke teller, like as an excuse to have the writers able to stuff as many irrelevant jokes as they want into the show. Maybe we should revisit sitcoms, you know, maybe a different type of sitcom centered on another type of thing somewhere down the line here and stop for now. So we're going to keep talking for the supporter-only audio. If you really like us, be there for us. Patreon.com slash pretty much pop. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Be our friend. We can be friends. Exactly. Just, just support us. Yeah. It only takes your support in monetary value to be our friend. Right? <laughs> gross. It's awful. I feel gross, too. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at mvmt.com again that's up to 50% off at mvmt.com